0: Sonia Nazario was born in the U.S., raised in Kansas, but her family's always been on the move. Her father fled Syria as a young Christian. Her mother fled Poland as a young Jew. They met in Argentina. Together, they moved north. Had Sonia. And then... When my
1: father died, when I was a teen, my mother decided to take us back to Argentina and I witnessed persecution myself because I landed there in that country in Latin America just as the military was taking power.
0: What happened next was called the Dirty War. 30,000 political dissidents were killed by the military dictatorship. And I
1: lived in a reign of terror for a year and a half. I had a close friend who was tortured to death, 16 years old, a close family relative, 17 years old, who was nearly tortured to death. I saw this in a very personal, in my bones sort of way, the need to flee.
0: This need to flee. It's what Sonia sees when she looks at the immigration crisis today. Sonia's a journalist. She's been documenting immigration from Central America for decades. When she writes about the border, she sees all the history that goes with it. And she's scared about the history we might be repeating.
1: You know, during World War II... The U.S. turned away a ship with 900 Jews on board and said, you can't dock at our shores. And hundreds of those Jews were murdered when they were sent back to Germany. And after the war, the U.S. became a leader in saying, never again, we are never going to do this again. We will not send people back to their deaths. And yet I believe that's what we are doing today. We, we're we basically sending these people into incredible danger instead of providing them with safety. And I think this is immoral, what we're doing right now.
0: I can hear how upset this makes you. How I wonder if that has changed in the last year,
1: Well, you know, I think people on the right, center right, say, you know, people should come here the right way. We want people to obey the rule of law, right? Well, we have laws. And I think that we're breaking those laws. And uh, you can't just say, you know, apply the rule of law in some areas, but don't apply it uh, in other areas. On the other hand, I I think I piss off people on both sides of the political spectrum. I believe that if an asylum seeker comes to our border, we should be more compassionate on the front end. But I think if you're more compassionate on the front end, and this is the part that, liberals don't like, I believe that if you lose your asylum case and you've been given uh, more compassion, more due process on the front end, if you lose, I don't have a problem with ICE rolling out, uh, apprehending you right after you lose your case and deporting you. Because the truth is we can't take in everyone from around the world. We do need a country that obeys the rule of law. I've lived in a country, Argentina, with no laws.
0: You don't want that. The real way to stop the crisis at the border, according to Sonia, is to get at the root of the problem. Figure out where that need to flee is coming from. Over the last year, Sonia traveled to Honduras to do just that. Today, she's going to tell me what she found. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let's let's start a little bit with Honduras. Um, You say you've been going there for 20 years?
1: I have. I started going there in uh, 2000. I was writing what was a newspaper series would become probably the most read book about immigrants in the United States called Enrique's Journey. And what I wanted to show was that there were millions of single moms coming to the US from Central America, leaving children behind. And then the incredible modern day odyssey that these children often made after not seeing mom for five or 10 years uh, to come and reunify with them. And often these children would make this journey on top of freight trains through Mexico. So I happened to hook into a Honduran boy who hadn't seen his mom in 12 years, and he sets off from Honduras, and I wanted to make the same journey that he had just made. So I spent three months on top of freight trains riding through Mexico to see what these children go through coming to find their moms in the U.S. Sonia made that
0: trip. Along the way, she fought with gangsters and bandits, made her way back to the border, I mean, I did win a Pulitzer for
1: doing this, but, um, um, but yeah, it's, it was not, is not advisable. Um,
0: as the caravan- she decided to go back to Honduras when she started seeing a different trend on the U.S. border. A whole family showing up, women and kids. She wanted to know what had changed. She found Honduran women who felt hunted.
1: In many countries in the world where women are murdered, they're often murdered by their husband or their partner. But in Honduras, half are murdered by narco cartels or gangs. And I saw this in the neighborhood where I've spent time over the last 20 years. There was a girl last year at the top of the hill that's controlled by the 18th Street Gang, one of the two main gangs in Honduras. And she had rejected the advances of a gang leader. And so she was heading to buy some eggs at a little uh, store and several gangs gang members grabbed her. They dragged her by the hair 20 blocks through the streets of this neighborhood. She was begging, crying out to people for a Bible because she knew what was going to happen to her. And they took her into one of these uh, casas locas, crazy houses that the gangs appropriate. They, they basically come to you and say, get out of your house. This is now our house. And that's that they used to torture and kill people. And they gang raped her and they cut her to bits.
0: It sounds like a warning
1: it's a way of uh, telling people what will happen to you if you go against the gangs or you go against the narco cartels. I saw the same kind of warning with uh, in reporting about corruption Often, uh, most of the bus, taxi, and motorcycle taxi drivers in Honduras on Monday morning have to go and pay an extortion tax, a war tax, to one or three or six gangs. And if you don't pay that extortion tax to the gang, they will kill you.
0: I mean, you went along with someone who actually paid this tax. You even had your cell phone going. What'd you see? So
1: I wanted to see kind of how this goes down, how it works. And this bus owner, he owns three buses and he pays for 55 buses total on Monday morning. And he said, you're welcome to come with me. And so he received the call from the gang member saying, can you come pay early today? We hopped into his little black car. And he went to a, a spot outside a hardware store where he, the bus dispatcher showed up with this brick of cash, basically. And then we started driving up into this neighborhood called Las Pavas in the capital of Honduras, which is a, a stronghold of the 18th Street Gang. And as we're going up, there are these lookouts with AK-47s watching us as we go up this hill and as we reach the top of the hill, he stopped in front of this uh, greenhouse and these two youths materialize from nowhere And he just uh, brought down the window two inches so they couldn't see me uh, cowering in the back wheel well and with my iPhone trying to tape this. And he shoved this brick of cash through the window, and the two youths disappeared. And they would pass on that cash to the leaders of the gang ultimately. And this is what every single, virtually every single bus driver, bus owner, taxi driver is doing on Monday
0: morning. What Sonia's reporting does is bring these two things, violence against women and corruption, together. Because what's happening to the women isn't separate from the extortion. It's all of a piece with the ecosystem the gangs and cartels have created, one in which they are the de facto government. But Sonia also found organizations that are trying to repair Honduras. So I asked her to tell me about one of them. It's called A More Just Society.
1: I first witnessed their work three years ago. I went to the most dangerous neighborhood in what was then, for four years running, the murder capital of the world, San Pedro Sula, Honduras. And in this neighborhood, there were these six gangs that controlled this neighborhood with an iron grip. Bodies littered the street every morning. Um, The gangs so brazenly controlled this neighborhood that one day they were playing soccer with the head of someone they had just decapitated in broad daylight because they paid off the police, and this nonprofit went in. Uh, they they were sent into the worst hotspots in Honduras, including this neighborhood. And they would go to the morgue when the family was picking up the body and say, you know, we're we're a Christian nonprofit from the U.S. We have nothing to do with this evil Honduran government. Can we help you move the body? Can we help you get coffee for the wake? And after two or three months of dealing with the family, they would build up trust and they would say can you testify? Because many family members have even witnessed the murder and know who the murderer is. Sometimes the mur- murderer comes to the wake of the person they've just murdered to thumb their nose at the family. And so um, they convince these people to testify and they cover them in a black burqa, like they do in mafia trials in Italy, rubber boots, gloves on their hands. So you can't see their skin tone. And when you we arrived at the courthouse, they shoved this woman who was going to testify in her black burqa into this little closet with this one-way mirror, and this closet was on wheels, and they rolled her into the courtroom. And through a one-way mirror, she testified and put away these two really bad uh, guys. She testified through a voice distorter. Doing this, they have gotten uh, convictions on more than half of the homicides in this worst neighborhood in Honduras. And what I saw was that this and two other things that the U.S. was helping fund in this neighborhood helped drive down homicides. 62% in two years. And it cut the number of children fleeing this neighborhood for the north in half.
0: But so here's the thing. I think people hear about the experiment you're talking about and they think, yeah, but people are still coming north. So it, it's a kind of throwing up of hands. Like, well, we tried that. It seemed like it worked, but still people are coming. And so what are we, what are we not getting here?
1: Well, I think, first of all, you have to do these kinds of things for 10 or 20 years. This is not a one-year or two-year project. Basically, we increased funding in 2015, and then it's been cut every year since then, and now it's been uh, cut altogether. So this is not something, you you don't change corruption, you don't change impunity, you don't lower violence in a place like Honduras overnight. But I think that you also need to, um, you need to create a, a real plan in Honduras of how to spend this money. You need benchmarks where if you're trying to lower the homicide rate, you have to show that the Honduran government is lowering femicides violence against women, lowering domestic violence, increasing the number of murder convictions. So set clear benchmarks and say, if you don't meet these benchmarks, then we're going to cut off all foreign aid. And we need to help send a lot of the politicians in Honduras who are corrupt
0: uh, to jail. I mean, you say that the corruption in Honduras goes all the way up to the president, Juan Orlando Hernandez. Can you tell us a little bit why you say that? Well, for one thing, his brother, Tony Hernandez, was arrested in Miami
1: last November and charged with bringing over tons of cocaine into the United States, helping move drugs through Honduras north to the United States, doing it so brazenly that he would label the bricks of cocaine with his initials T.H., And about a week ago, the president was uh, there was an allegation by federal prosecutors in documents against his brother's case that he had taken $1.5 million uh, from narco uh, cartels for his 2013 presidential campaign. Um, There's two ways to steal money illegally in Honduras you take money from the narco cartels, or you steal from the public coffers. And with his family members, there are allegations
0: of both. Listening to this story, though, I kind of understand why the United States would say, well, we need to cut off funding to these countries because the corruption is everywhere. We don't know how our money is going to be spent. And it seems like we're throwing more good money after bad.
1: We actually do know how our money's gonna be spent because long ago, the United States realized that there is corruption in places like Honduras. So we don't cut a check and give it to the president of Honduras. I have problems with some of the military and police aid that we've given to uh, Honduras now and in the past, but in terms of humanitarian aid, almost all of that is going to vetted international aid groups like World Vision and the Association for a More Just Society or uh, the civil society groups that are vetted in Honduras. So it's there's a lot of um, uh, checking for accountability and that the money is being spent. Adequately, and we can show, as I sh- as I described earlier, that this money is being spent in many ways. That is uh, reducing corruption, is bringing these corruption cases to light, as this nonprofit, a- the Association for More Just Society, has done. Is helping battle corruption, is helping ha- helping to battle violence. So uh, the option is to walk away and and watch things get a whole lot worse. And a lot more people
0: surge towards our southern border. That's the other option. I asked Sonia one more thing before we got off the line. I asked her to tell me about the way corruption has spread to Honduran schools. Because it's one thing for the gangs to be charging taxi drivers a war tax, or for the president's family members to be involved in drug trafficking. But it's something else entirely for the government itself to shirk one of its basic responsibilities. An anti-corruption research group found evidence that Honduras's school system was full of ghost teachers, who never showed up to work, but collected a paycheck nevertheless. Ghost schools, too. Entire schools that do not exist
1: in imaginary towns. And you go to these schools in the neighborhood where I'm at, and there are no textbooks. Uh, One of them doesn't even have a toilet for the children to be able to go to the bathroom. And you see this money being wasted and and, uh, robbed. It's infuriating. But the only option is to work to make these things better. And there are good groups that are working to try to make things better, but they need funds to be able to do
0: that yeah one of the women who really stood out to me in your reporting was the woman who just showed up at the school every day and counted every teacher that came and you know she knew every Monday this guy wasn't going to show up and you know she was there holding people accountable so and this, from yeah, yeah this, go ahead this woman is just
1: fierce uh and and I love. People like this who I meet in my reporting. Her name was Ondina Esperanza Diaz. And she had been trained as part of uh, the Association for More Just Society of these monitors who go to local schools or local health clinics to see if the people who are supposed to show up and work actually do. So it was the first day of school, February 4th, earlier this year. And you know, this woman's 52 years old. She weighs 95 pounds. She barely made it through the fifth grade herself. And it was the Pablo Portillo School in this neighborhood where I was at and she's there with her nine-year-old son and she's waiting for the teacher to show up. She's counting them. There's teacher number one, there's teacher number two and she's especially looking for this teacher who for years has not shown up on Mondays to teach because he says that he has a nose problem and that prevents him from teaching, especially on Mondays. Uh, She thinks he just always wants a long weekend. So she's holding these uh, school officials accountable And when the school director showed up and said, oh, he's not here today, and by the way, I'm leaving too, she went up to her and got in her face and said, we're going to do something about this. And she has this nonprofit backing her up. And soon enough, she had a new director of the school and a new teacher instead of the one who had the nose problems. That's what you need. You need to mobilize people on the ground in these neighborhoods to make the government do what it's supposed to do.
0: Yeah, it sounds like in your reporting, what you really found is that there are these embers in a place like Honduras. There are these people who are very committed to making the country work. But I guess we're going to find out in the next few months and years whether we're going to feed that flame and whether we're going to resource those people or whether we won't.
1: You know, most of the people who work, many of the people, the leaders of the Association for a More Just Society, lived with armed guards. They're constantly facing death threats. Uh, They're doing this because they want to make Honduras a better, less violent, less corrupt place. And we should help those people. It's good for them and it's good for us because it will reduce the number of people fleeing to our southern border.
0: Sonia Nazario, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Sonia Nazario is the author of the book Enrique's Journey. You can find her writing over in the opinion section of The New York Times. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Jason DeLeon and Mary Wilson. Today, over on the Gist, Our Brother podcast, Mike Pesca is back from the Iowa State Fair where he's been talking to presidential candidates who are out in droves to convince Iowans that they had the right stuff. You can listen to his interview with Jay Inslee, the Washington state governor, the guy who is most vocal about climate change, by going on over to his feed right now. I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you tomorrow.